When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to a bonus edition of Behind the Mic with Audiophile Magazine. I'm Joe Reed. A letter to my daughters. Ever since I was a child and discovered his framed marriage counselor accreditation certificate tucked inside a sexual intimacy and marriage manual in our garage, I have wanted to speak to my father about marriage. Now, as an adult, I wonder, did he and my mother ever hold hands? How did he court her? Did he dance with her and then help her with the dishes? Did he make love to her in the kitchen? Did she rub his scalp after? How did they love is the question I've contemplated asking during those times when my own love life was discomforting or in peril. That was the award-winning author Kwame Alexander narrating an excerpt from the beginning of his newly released memoir, Why Fathers Cry at Night. Kwame Alexander is well-known to people who love poetry and who love children's literature. The author of 38 books, including An American Story, The Undefeated, and the Newbery Award-winning novel, The Crossover, Kwame is also a producer, a frequent contributor to Morning Edition, and co-founder of LEAP, an international literacy program. Why Fathers Cry at Night is Kwame's intimate and unusual memoir. It's a deeply felt mashup of poems, letters, recipes, and remembrances, which he brilliantly narrates. It's a portrait of a man who's still growing and learning and thinking about the many ways he loves, as a son, as a husband, as a friend, and most of all, as a father. I'll let Kwame Alexander tell you the rest. This is a book that was intended to be a book of love poems and wanted to write about familial love, wanted to write about the love of a father for his children. I wanted to write about romantic love. It was just a way for me to share what I've been thinking and feeling over the past couple dozen years. I started out writing love poems, my first maybe 10 books. And of course, the last 13 or 14 years I've been writing for children. So this was my sort of comeback to this place that I enjoyed and, and began writing in earnest. And somewhere along the way, my editor, Judy Klein, said, Kwame, there's a story here you're telling. Perhaps this is more than just a collection of love poems. Maybe you should write a prose piece. And I wrote one prose piece. And then she said, maybe you should write another. <laughs> then I wrote another one. Before you knew it, it was memoir-esque. 
Indeed, I was telling a story about my love life and everything I've learned about love, which it turns out ain't a whole lot, but as a way to communicate to my daughters sort of who I am as a father, as a husband, as a lover, as a divorcee, as a son. So yeah, that's that's where it ended. It started out as something completely different, but that's where it ended. Memoir-esque, I think, is a great way of putting it because the subtitle is A Memoir in Love Poems, Letters, Recipes, and Remembrances. Yeah, I thought about it like this. There's a poet friend of mine who read it, her name Joanna, and she really helped me understand and, and glean exactly how this hybrid approach to writing this memoir came about or, or how, it, how it is best described. And that is, as a parent, oftentimes you are cooking dinner, you are helping with homework, you are responding to a text from your lover, you are chastising someone, you are reflecting on something that happened last weekend, and you're thinking about your parents and hoping they're okay, all at the same time. You don't have the luxury of being able to sort of separate and compartmentalize. I think I think that's what the book is. It's me sort of just being, just living, just going through the daily happenings of all those things. Well, it feels very organic as a reader slash listener. And as you say, it's about love and in a very inclusive way, because so much of it is a love letter to your mother, Barbara Alexander. And your mother's love of reading played a really big role in your love of books. Can you tell us a little bit more about how your mom influenced your passion for reading and for writing? Yeah, you know, they were both academics, but my dad practiced his verbal mania at home in addition to in his classrooms. And so there was a word that was said around the house and and we wanted to know what it meant. It was always like, go look it up. In fact, while you're there, read the dictionary for a half an hour. It was always read these historical tomes that he had in his garage, read these books. You know, as a kid, as a nine, 10, 11 year old, nobody wants to read Pedagogy of the Oppressed by Paulo Freire. That's just not an interest. So it was a laborious sort of task when it came to my dad in terms of reading. With my mom, it was more fun. It was more storytelling and song and rhythm and rhyme. And so my dad had written 16 books, but when I had a paper due, I went and approached my mom to help me with it. And when I was asked to be the youth speaker at our church on Fifth Sunday when I was 12, my mom was the person who helped me craft this speech which I titled, You Made Your Bed, Now Sleep In It. So my mom made it all seem fun and interesting and engaging. And my dad was definitely more informational and empowerment. And I think I just got really lucky, Joe, because I got the best of those worlds. And I was able to, I think, fuse them together. And that has sort of been, for lack of a better word, my brand. I have one question with three components. When and how did you decide to become a writer? Why poetry? And then finally, why the shift to children's literature? So the goal was to be a pediatrician. And my major at Virginia Tech was biochemistry. And so that was my focus and my plan. And I remember taking chemistry class the summer before freshman year at Virginia Tech. 
they had this program called the Summer Transition Program for Black students to help us get acclimated or acquainted with this campus that was now going to be less than 1% Black. And I took the chemistry course and I loved it. The teacher was amazing. And I, I, I got an A in it. I was just really excited about biochemistry and, and becoming a doctor. And that was my plan. And so my first couple of years at Virginia Tech were challenging because A, I was a social butterfly. Like I was out in the world enjoying the parties <laughs> and having a great time and and trying to be cool and not doing as great as I should have been academically. And then in sophomore year, I took organic chemistry, which of course, you know, that's probably one of the most challenging courses that one would take in the science field in undergrad. And I didn't do too well. And I remember thinking to myself, man, this just isn't working out. I really need to reconsider whether this is going to be my major. And none of my advisors ever told me that I could still be a doctor, even if I changed my major to religion or philosophy or something else. And I didn't get that message. And so simultaneously, I met a girl. I wrote her a couple love poems. I thought I was cool. And then in 87, Nikki Giovanni became a professor at Virginia Tech. And I signed up for advanced poetry course. I had never taken a poetry class. Of course, again, I was well-read, so I had read a lot of poetry, read a lot of her poetry, and fashioned myself a poet because I had written some love poems that got me dates. So as I began to take her classes and began to write more poetry, I said, okay, well, maybe I'm going to give English creative writing a focus. It was that year, it was 87, when I sort of made that decision to pursue that major in terms of becoming a writer, sitting in Nikki Giovanni's class for three years and seeing a working poet was very inspirational, even if I didn't know it or admit it at the time. But I was able to see a, a writer who was doing this thing out in the world and people were loving it and, and she was being paid for it. And I've always been one who, who loved attention, Joe. And I thought, you know, since I am a good writer, or I think I'm a good writer, maybe I should write a poetry book. And so I wrote my first book, maybe the year right after college. No one would publish it. I submitted poems to magazines. No one would publish them. Love poems. And, and so I ended up publishing my first book. And it felt right. It felt like this is going to be your life, your job. You are going to be a poet. That first book, I knew it, the way it felt in my hand. I remember I had a book signing in Marina Del Rey at a gazebo. And I remember I had on a, a vest, this, this very itchy vest. But I remember reading from the book to about 25 people in the, in the gazebo. And then after I read in my really beautiful, itchy vest, I took the vest off and put on a... Oxford shirt. And my idea in my mind was, okay, well, now I'm a businessman. I was a cool writer when I was reading, but now I've got to sell books. So I've got to be a different person. I've got to be the business Kwame. I remember selling a lot of books and I remember thinking, okay, I understand how to do this. This was around 1994. And 
after that first book and that first tour that I put myself on, I knew this is going to be my job. This is going to be my life and I'm going to make this work and I'm going to be successful at it. Fast forward to 2008. So you're talking about 14 years later and I'd had about 16 or 17 different jobs, had not figured out how to make a living from writing, but had written 10 or 11 books. So was still dreaming that this could happen. And my daughter was born. My second daughter was born, Samaya, and I was laid off from a job. So I was home with her and I would, I would read to her Mo Willems. I'd read to her poetry, read to her some Jacqueline Woodson. I'd read to her books and, and my sensibilities for writing began changing. I began writing to her and writing for her. And so my first children's book that I wrote was when she was maybe two. It was, it was a book to teach her about jazz music. It was called Acoustic Rooster's Barnyard Band. I have to interrupt. That is a fabulous book. Yeah, yeah, I love it. And that was this evolution of how I began to write for kids. In this conversation, you've mentioned the different hats you wear as a writer. Writing in the 21st century, you have to wear different hats if you want to make any kind of a living at it at all. And another hat you put on is narrating audiobooks. You've, you've written many books, and you narrated a few of them, like Booked and Swing. And you also narrated Why Fathers Cry at Night. What made you decide you were going to narrate that book? Well, I always thought that I should be an audiobook narrator. It made sense. I was a performer. I had been doing this for a minute. And I remember when the crossover came out, I asked my publisher if I could do the audiobook. And they were like, nah, you're not a professional. I was like, no, I got this. Trust me. They were like, no, no, you can't do it. We need to hire somebody who can really do it. Oh man, I was so upset. They got an actor to do it who my father says did an amazing job. I still haven't listened to it to this day. I guess I'm still angry. But eventually the publisher got it. And, and, and so I've been asked to do every book since then. And maybe I've done about half. Why Fathers Cry at Night was a no brainer. I've written 37 books, and this was the first book that I was not making up a story. It was my story, and I felt like I was going to have to talk about my childhood. I was going to have to talk about my daughters. I was going to have to talk about my mom. Like, no one else could do that, and I felt like that was really important. And so we recorded it over the course of a couple days, and I remember we were getting to the end of day two, and there was this piece about my mother. It was called Rebound, and and I knew what that piece was going to do. And, but it's not at the end of the book. It's toward the end. But when we got to it, I said, I cannot read this. This needs to be the last thing I do before we leave the studio. And they obliged. And so we got to that piece. And it's like a six, seven, eight-minute piece. And I read it to everyone in the studio, including myself. We're all just a river of tears. My father stayed overnight with her. It was the first night I wasn't with her. It was a cruel foreshadowing. I rushed back to the hospital at dawn, only to have the doctors tell me there was nothing they could do for my mother, that she was alive because of the breathing machine. I was alive because of her. What would happen when she was no longer? My sisters and I talked and agreed to take her home. If she was going to die, I thought, let it be in the privacy and comfort of her own bed. But first, I'd need to ask her permission. It was a really powerful moment. 
And I'm just glad I got to do it. I got to read it. Like that was a big part of my healing in a way too. Because it's so deeply personal, this book, that it has to be different from you narrating something like Booked, which you did a great job at. It was wonderful. But to narrate something this personal, that's your life, your mother and her passing and your daughters and marriages. What was it like to bring something this deeply personal to life in this way? I mean, you put it on the page, but now you're saying it out loud for all of us to hear. Yeah, you know, it was fun. It was fun, you know, and it, it was continued therapy. One of the reasons why I realized I had to write this book is because it was necessary for me to get to a point in my life where I was more open, where I shared more of myself, where where I had less of a wall up. I didn't even realize, Joe, I had a wall up. I thought I was an open book. And I was in Puerto Rico with two of my buddies, my best friends. We were hanging out. We were sitting there. We were having dinner. And I was like, do y'all think I've had a wall up, like, emotionally? Have I been open with y'all over these past 20 years? And they just both laughed. And they were like, dude, you've always been surface. And I was like, what? No. (laughs) And so I feel like writing this book forced me to sort of realize that having this wall up or not being emotionally available or not being forthcoming, as forthcoming as I should be, of being more performative, that has not served me. And so writing the book was a way to say, okay, dude, you're putting it out there. I hadn't thought about all this before I wrote the book, Joe. I definitely hadn't thought about it before the advanced reading copies went out. And so once the book was out in the world, it was like, oh, snap. You just literally told people your business. So now you are forcing yourself to have hard, difficult, meaningful, significant conversations, interactions, and engagements. And so reading the book, narrating it, was yet another step in that journey. Like the more you say it, the more comfortable you are discussing it and talking about it and the better off you will be as a man. So yeah, it was great. And and I felt like it was a great precursor and a preparation for the book tour that I'm gonna go on. People are gonna ask me questions, but bigger than that, it's just a preparation for being able to have real authentic conversations and relationships with the people I love and who love me. Okay, let me ask you this. When you were narrating Why Fathers Cry at Night, did you ever want to tweak a line when you heard yourself saying it out loud? Did you ever think, oh, you know what? Maybe I should have said this or used this word. Heck yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to take some of those poems out of there. I wanted to remove some lines. Like, why'd you say that? And then, I, and then I'd say to myself, well, it's true. But no, but why'd you say it? So yeah, there were times where I felt like doing that. Thank goodness it was too late. You know, I mean, when you're writing about marriage and divorce and you're writing about the circumstances around loss with some people who are still in your life, like there's a certain level of I'm writing my story, but I'm not writing theirs. So I got to be respectful to them. At the same time, I got to speak my truth. So there have been numerous times where I've been like a little panicky, like maybe I shouldn't publish the book at all. So certainly while I was reading the audio book, I was like, okay, 
this poem should not be in the book. We got to take the poem out. You know, of course, the books are back from the printer. It's too late for that. So, yeah, I had those moments. I think that's I think I think that's natural, especially, Joe, for someone who typically has not shared. You know, Kwame, as an author, what do you think are some of the unique advantages and challenges of audiobooks? I mean, how do you think it enhances or alters the reading experience? I think if, especially if the, the author reads the book or if a really good narrator reads it, I think it provides an opportunity for the listener to have an even more intimate and personal experience, especially when it comes to autobiography and memoir and, and poetry. And during the lockdown, I was living in London, England, and every day after I wrote, I would go walking around Regent's Park. And, you know, I'd spend an hour, hour and a half just walking and listening to audiobooks. And I just found it very comforting. And it was good to have, you know, someone's voice. Like you, you feel like someone's yeah. talking to you. And so that just comforted me. You know, I think, you know, sort of our social interaction as it relates to online, our social media interaction, we don't get a whole lot of tactile, touchy, feely sort of engagement with people. And I feel like audiobooks are are on that continuum and they get us closer to having more meaningful, I think, engagement with text. So it provided some comfort for me and, and I enjoyed it. There's something about having the voice in your ear because you know we're all basically on devices listening through ear pods. And so it literally is a voice in your head telling yeah. you a story. Yeah, that's, that's a great way to look at it, you know? Like, you know, your bedtime story, you read aloud. You're a poet, and much of poetry is the arrangement of words on a page. And I know this is particularly true for you because I've read your books and seen the way you play with words on a page. How did you translate this to the audiobook? How did you make that white space on the page sort of come alive for us in our ears? When I write poetry... I'm writing it in a way that I hear it. I'm a very oral poet. Like if you look at the crossover, you will see the way I play with words on the page and, and use the white space. And, and so those were a reflection of how I was thinking and hearing the poem as I said it out loud or, or composed it in my head. And so it's not the other way around. It's not that I'm writing a poem a certain way. And then when I read it on the audiobook, I want to make it sound that way. No, I've already made it sound how I want to make it sound. The trick is, how do I make it look how it's going to look on the page? Picturing you. I am not a painter. Browns and blues, we get along, but we are not close. I am no Van Gogh, but give me plain paper, a dull pencil, some scotch, and I will hijack your curves. Take your soul hostage. Paint a portrait so colorful and delicate you just may have to cut off my ear. So when I'm in the studio recording the audiobook, that's ground zero. Like I knew that before I knew how to write the poem. That's natural and fun and exciting. And that's, hey, if Why Fathers Cry at Night was just an audiobook, I'd be fine with it. You know, because that's where it started. It started as an audiobook first, which is why I was so miffed that they wouldn't let me do the crossover. Okay, <laughs> I'm going backwards. My my apologies for regressing. <laughs> You still got a bone to pick with them about that. No, I'm not bitter. I'm not bitter, Joe. 
Okay, we got to talk about cooking because I love cooking and I love the way you talked about cooking in this book and I love the recipes that you included. So when did cooking come into your life? Well, Joe, have you made any of the recipes yet? I'm making the turkey legs this weekend. Oh, nice. Nice. That's my first one. (laughs) I knew that recipes were going to be a part of the memoir once it became a memoir, that is. Instantly, because one of the things that happened as a result of me moving to London and and being locked down is that I took that as an opportunity to teach myself how to cook. I'd always knew how to cook, but I didn't know how to burn. I didn't know how to get down in the kitchen. And I had very limited things I could make. I could make pasta and shrimp for my kid for dinner. You know, I could bake salmon. You know, I could cook on a grill, but I really wanted to learn how to cook. And so the idea was, I want to learn how to cook the dishes that my mom cooked. I want to learn how to cook because my mom was an amazing cook. I want to teach myself how to cook as a way to get closer to my mother, who's no longer here. So this cooking thing was a way for me to find a, a tunnel that allowed me to to come out on the other side and feel and see and hear her. Yeah, that was my motivation. That was my impetus. And and I started with fried chicken because it was something I remember her making really well. And it was something that my daughter loves. And I thought, okay, this is going to be a connection that I can have with my mom and my kid. Three generations, one meal. And that was the first recipe for the book figuring that out. And then it was just a matter of well, what other recipes are meaningful and significant. And some, some I've made and some I hadn't. And so I had to make those work. So that's how the recipes became a part of it. It had to have been really difficult to come up with like two teaspoons of this, one teaspoon of that, half a cup of this, because that's typically not the way recipes are passed down. Especially in my family and most Black families, when they don't pass down written recipes, it's always a little bit of this and a little bit of that. You know, that's that's why I wrote those passages that introed each recipe is because a lot of this, a lot of this is just how you feel, what you're listening to. Are you putting the love into it? Barbara's Picnic Fried Chicken. It took poet me 12 tries to recreate my mother's perfectly crispy, juicy fried chicken. There just isn't anything more delicious than a crunchy piece of finger-licking good fried chicken. It might seem daunting, and it does require some trial and error, some focus and experimentation. But as long as you have some patience and a brown paper bag, you're on your way to the absolute best fried chicken ever. Trust me on this. I'm making this for Samaya only. Five pieces or twenty She's going to eat them all. What I'm listening to is the Nancy Wilson Cannonball Adderley album. By the time you get to one man's dream, you should be done. I think that's what it is with these recipes, that it's more about what kind of love, what kind of heart love, what kind of energy are you putting into this? Are you putting you into this? Are you putting who you, your real authentic self into this cooking? And I think when you do that, I don't know if you can lose. You are starting a podcast, sir, called Why Fathers Cry at Night. Tell me about it. And are you going to share recipes on it? (laughs) So 
we are starting a podcast and the idea again you know we talked about how important it is to hear our voices to to physically hear to listen to engage in an oral tradition and then how important it is for men to open up and share and of course i know this for its first hand cuz you know i'm not a grown man i'm a growing man i'm doing this i'm sharing i'm opening up and so i want to have conversations with men about their relationships about their romance about their responsibility as as sons and fathers about about longing as the as the portuguese the brazilians say saudade i want to have conversations about about all of this about grief with men who i don't i don't know if we we do that enough with each other we do that enough with uh with our partners with our families so that's the goal is to have those real meaningful funny open vulnerable conversations that that we haven't really you know been doing as much yeah i'm sure there'll be recipes i'm sure i'm sure the the book will be a great jump off for what we're going to do and tell me about the title of the book why the title why fathers cry at night the title was judy's idea my editor at little brown um it comes from a poem i wrote called 10 reasons why fathers cry at night and it was it was a poem i wrote when my firstborn said she wanted to she wanted to start dating and it's just like that that moment where your kid no longer wants to hold your hand when you're walking her to school or your teenager comes in the house says hi with a grunt you ask how was school they say fine they go in their room and close the door you don't see them anymore until the next morning you know this person that you have loved wholly and solely and and done so much to prepare her to go out into this world and be who she's going to be and now she's doing it and you look around but she, she's doing it by herself and you're like oh no it's over it's having to sit down with your kid and say your mom and I are getting divorced you know it's just sort of all those things that are life changing and transformative and this was my way to capture those and deal with them and heal from some of them in a way too. Well that is a good place to leave it. Kwame Alexander, thank you. Thank you for this wonderful book and your really wonderful narration of it. Thank you, Joe. Thank you so much. It's really a pleasure. Thank you. That was the award-winning writer and poet Kwame Alexander. He is the writer and narrator of Why Fathers Cry at Night. a memoir in love poems, letters, recipes and remembrances. It was just published by Hachette. This has been a bonus edition of Behind the Mic. Follow Behind the Mic wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating on Apple because it helps people who love audiobooks to find us. I'm Joe Reed. Good listening.